Hey folks, it's that time of year again when we review our top 10 most viewed sales leadership podcast outtakes on LinkedIn. At number 10, it's Hugo Suarez, VP of SMB Sales EMEA at OutSystems on the good, the bad, and the ugly sides of leadership and how you need to adapt. You obviously have seen many changes take place in the sales landscape in the past 10, 15 years. I'm curious to know what you think in terms of both what what you see that's good and bad and how leadership has to adapt in order to cater for the changes that are taking place. I mean, uh, the digital revolution has obviously been something. I remember when I when I pick up the phone in 2004 and start calling some folks, uh, everyone thought, this is not the way to sell. No one sells over the phone. And, and now these days, remote selling is, isn't... Isn't something that works because people yeah, please pick up the phone. Exactly, <laughs> if, if people they want to be, uh, and and I, and I still believe that people buy from people and people like human interaction. But the way that the, the world has advanced, and that because of the speed of the internet, the tools that we have now, uh, we need to adapt uh, and and understand that selling is selling at the end of the day. Uh, and when I started as an inside salesperson, there was this kind of demeanor of, well, you're an inside salesperson. Uh, and then you start closing some deals and some big ones, um, and you realize, okay, this actually can work. And, and, and once, once we, we hit the pandemic, then I, I, if there's anyone in the world that has any doubts at this point that we can do uh, most things remotely, um, it, is, it is, well, he's a fool or she's a fool, uh, because we can. Um, I think the shift now is is the, the, the speed of things. Like uh, uh, if, if you think about uh, marketing uh, or, or sales and the fact that everything is done at an incredible speed uh, and opinions are formed at an incredible speed, you need to find a way to tap into that because it's, it's not like in the old days that you're a sales guy and you, and you make your territory plan. You take your car and you go to a couple of places. There's a tower with, I don't know, 50 companies in it and you knock on the door and everyone else and you sell now there are the, the way that the, the, the digital course um, um, takes place and, and, and things happen so fast. Um, and the way that customers also or prospects buy is much different than the, back in the day you had you were selling a product uh, to someone for the first time that they, they, they had no idea about the product. These days, whenever you're speaking with people, they already know about it, they already, they already know what, what, what's it for. They already know about you, and in their mind, they already have a short list, if not a decision, on who they want to 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 acquire or when why. So the the customer is also much 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 better informed and knowledgeable about the things that they want to do. Uh, and it's our job as salespeople to one tap into that to understand where the leads are coming from, how do they buy, and what are the types of decisions that they're making. Uh, to, in order to, for you to fit the process. Uh, I, I, I learned a lot about a, uh, buying, um, so selling process. I, I'm, I'm keen to understand whenever I speak with customers or prospects, how do they buy and why they buy it, right? And what are the, is the due diligence that they did in order to acquire a specific product? But then it, it kind of varies. If you're selling a product that is retail or something that is... Um, pretty straightforward, um, it's one thing. If you're selling something that is highly disruptive um, uh, or uh, that, that people don't believe that they need it, 
such as, for instance, uh, sales training or leadership training, um, then you need to you need always obviously to work that around. At number nine, it's Richard McGuinness, CRO at eDesk, talking to me about what makes one person stand out over another. The, the, the stuff that's well modeled is, is relatively easy to assimilate. It's, it's, the, it's the, the X factor. Mm-hmm. What, what makes one person stand out versus the other where they're both trained and coached to the same level? And, and how do you, what, what do you look for uh, in the people you work with to help them grow? Um, so I think it was, uh, was it Daniel Pink wrote the book Drive and in that it really hit me when I read it about the difference between extrinsic and intrinsic motivators. That idea of being effectively, you can dangle a carrot in front of somebody, but if they, they're not hungry or they, they don't like carrots, then there's no point in, in putting it there. So yeah. the, the part that I think we can underestimate the value of is the, uh, is the discovery of somebody's intrinsic motivator. What is it that's actually going to, to get them up in the morning and keep them going at night? What is the thing that actually will drive them to an end that they want to, you know, that they'll be excited by? And tr- extrinsic motivators are, you know, you, you, you can't get enough of them. You can't get enough extrinsic pieces and people will dangle them and th- because they don't satisfy. If the intrinsic motivator is something that you, you, you uh, work to and you find within the person, the, the prospect, the, the partner you're working with, the, the uh, team member that you're hiring, if you can un- uncover some of those intrinsic motivators, the the why almost of it, and why they're doing something, then that gives the that gives a very strong attachment to the the path they've got to go forward on. Yeah, I, I want to talk to you because I think there's a lot in this. I'd like to explore that, go a little bit deeper on that in terms of how do you identify that? Because I always remember when it jumped out at me was, and it's a while ago now. I think it was 2007. I was training for Dublin City Marathon with my brother-in-law and we would go out on a Sunday and run together. And it was, we're, we're at the 14 mile stage in training. And for, when you're at that stage, 14 miles is as difficult as 26 miles when you're at that stage. It doesn't matter, right? And it was a particularly difficult run. And I remember Mark uh, saying to me, you know, Paul, he says, you could not pay me to do this. And, it was, and I thought it was a really interesting comment because it's true, nobody was paying us to do it. Yeah. Nobody would have been upset with us. There was no stick either. If we decided not to do it, it would have been fine. That's your decision. But yet we were putting ourselves through a lot of this pain. And, but if, here's, the, here's, and here's where I want to go with you, is that if you were to ask me why I was doing this, I don't know that I could have told you. Mm-hmm. I think maybe there's something in me that, you know, a psychologist might say I was running away from something. I don't know. And so I'm curious to know how you can, can you ever really identify intrinsic motivation? I don't, I'd like to understand your, your thoughts on it. I think, I think one of the, the firstly, uh, the fact that you even did the 14 miles of a marathon, Paul, uh, my, my hat goes off to you. If I wore one, I'd tip it at you because there's not a chance I have no intrinsic motivation whatsoever. I get tired driving 26 miles, so well done to you for, for, uh, for doing the marathon. I, um, if, if I look at how you find that intrinsic motivator in people, it's, it's not always an easy thing to surface. And it may have, as you say, some seated um, route that they're uncomfortable with or they're, they haven't quite identified themselves. But there's, there's some kind of 
magnetic north that people are pulled towards. It doesn't mean I, I need to know what the north is. I don't need to know what is necessarily pulling it, but I, I know they want to go in that direction. Mm. And, and that's about being responsive to the person that you're, you're speaking with and, and going into their zone as much as you can to try to understand how they, and what, you know, it's, it's, it's not what makes them tick, but what makes them, what, what would satisfy them? And how does that satisfaction arrive? So you, you to the point, I mean, 14 miles of, into a run, your brother's right, or you're, you're, uh, you're the point on you couldn't pay me. That's an extrinsic motivator. Mm. Nobody wants to work, you know, through the grudge or the drudge and the, and the, the tough bits for extrinsic motivators. That's, mm. that's a, oh, good luck. If you can tie an extrinsic motivator to the intrinsic reason you wish to do something, well, you got a chance. So if, for example, if in a sales environment, and, I, and I've done it before with team members where I know I need to be able to get them to achieve a certain level of outcome in terms of the target or the stretch goal or whatever might be needed. And there's a financial attachment to that, which is great. Um, so they'll make a little bit more money if we hit to that, but it's what the money means to them. What will they do with that? How can that apply to their, the home that they're trying to purchase or the car that they're looking to upgrade or the, the holiday that they want to take their family on? Mm. And, and that becomes the intrinsic motivator that's much more inti intimate than the extrinsic, well, you're going to make a lot more money because that really doesn't fire people's belly up. It's about what that means to them. And if you can, and a lot of times we, we fail, and I think this is a, a failure of, you know, the way people connect, the way we, we as sales professionals connect to our prospects or our customers. We think it's only one, we, we think only on one level or one, one level deep. Mm. The truth of it is there's a lot more pulling underneath that is, that is important to understand. And if you satisfy the, if you satisfy that itch, you wind up with a, a much more motivated team member, you, or you wind up with a much more loyal, connected and satisfied customer. And, and I think the, the lazy approach can sometimes be, we'll play the three chords with no music attached, no, as you say, understanding about what music do you want to listen to and how are you hearing the chords I'm playing? If you get behind that and hear the way that the, hear it from their side, that's the, that's where you can really make it mean something to the person that you're engaging with. So at number eight, Tom Castley, VP of me at Outreach reveals the number one competitor every seller faces. The, the number one competitor in for every salesperson, uh, the glib comp you know, thing is, oh, it's apathy. It's not, it's everything else they could be doing. And mm. you've got to overcome that. Now, uh, you can overcome that by waving the flag of awesomeness of whatever it is that you're pitching and trying to push. Or um, it's, there's a two-step process. The first one is you've got to get them to a point at which they decide that doing nothing is the worst possible decision that they could make. Now you've overcome what is, uh, if you look it up, it's called stability preference. It's uh, people enjoy, it's better the devil you know than the devil you don't. It's why people stick with, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. There's loads of sayings that talk to stability preference. Oh. Now, this is the counterintuitive side of things. You've got to be willing to invest the time to get somebody into motion. Now, when they're in motion, that doesn't guarantee that they're going to work with you. It just guarantees they're going to do something about it. Oh. Now, 
interesting when we're doing, you know, looking at competitive analysis, you know, we're, our previous company I worked at, we're like, oh, we lose 15% of our deals to XYZ competitor. And we will spend cycles, months and weeks trying to halve that. But the 80% of deals that are lost to apathy, we don't bother looking at. And I'm saying, so that's an element that says, right, get somebody in motion. When they're in motion, it's, you know, there's no, no original thought here. People process technology. That's what they'll look at when they're in motion. Do I hire some people, fire some people? Do I change some people around? Do I look at a process, introduce a new one, remove one? Or do I buy some technology or buy some expertise that allows me to address it? Now, so it's still variable in terms of what they're going to do, but at least they're in motion. Mm. Now, the super savvy seller inserts himself into that decision. And even if they don't end up buying your product or service, if you've added value, provided guidance, given a referral, uh, introduced somebody else into, into that decision that adds value to them, how likely are they next time to come back to you? We know they're very likely. But what you don't realize is they're actually oftentimes likely to come to you when they're still or, or the friction required to get them in motion the second time around is less because you got them moving last time and they felt comfortable with it. You know, the person that pushes you off the bungee jumping platform the first time, it's quite a big shove is required because I was resistant to being in motion. And then, you know, have a whale of a time bouncing up and down on the end of this string. When I go up on the platform again, if it's the same person, how hard do they have to push me second time? Not really that hard because they've proven to me that when they put me into motion, although it was really frightening, it's actually not that bad. And, and it's getting involved earlier on in that conversation. So. At number seven, Molly Grossman, manager SMB sales development, also at Outreach, recalls her journey transitioning from SDR to leading a team. I'm, I'm interested as well that, so you're done, you're doing the SDR, I know you were in a team lead role for yeah. a while. There, so there's a path, and I'm wondering how smooth that was from SDR into management and what you learned about yourself and what kind of obstacles, because it is a very different skill set that you had to overcome now that you're a manager and it brings its own sense of trepidation and worries as well that don't necessarily exist when you're the captain of your own ship. Now you have a crew, it's different. This is completely different, Paul. It's completely different. And I think that I was, I think we were on a management call the other week and someone said, you know, you're all managers because you did good at your job. You were good ICs. So you all got promoted to being managers, but that's not what makes a good manager. Um, yeah. and I thought that was just so true. Um, I found the transition from SDR to team lead harder than I ever found being an SDR, uh, which I don't think I, if I had kind of looked into a crystal ball, I would never have predicted. I kind of was like, I've done my hard work as an SDR, now all i need to do is get people to behave like i did and you know that's what a manager is a manager is just there to make people act like they did how wrong i was <laughs> um, so that was that was the hardest transition. how did you first discover that wasn't true oh god um how did i discover that wasn't true 
Um, well, I, I mean, obviously, I, I've been very supported, like, through the transition. Um, there was a lot, to be honest, even... There was a lot of, you know, I knew I'm very young. Um, I think when I became a team lead, I was tw I, 22, 23, and I was like, I'm going to be managing people that are way older than me. And there is this imposter syndrome that comes along um, to be like, you know, do you really have the authority? Do you really, can you really be telling or helping people? Um, and I was very fortunate. I had a lot of support in terms of like kind of coaching. Um, and I remember I sat on a Sales Impact Academy webinar and they were like, what did they say? Someone basically said, your role as a manager is not to create little clones of you. Your role as a manager isn't even to tell people what you would do. Your role as a manager is to coach people and help them figure out what they should do. Um, yeah. And obviously I was able to look up to Tom, who, as you know, is a big believer in that. Um, and Caitlin's the same. Um, and yeah, I guess I it was kind of uncomfortable conversations and you know, realising that I had a team of people that unless I was there in the mix helping them all, they wouldn't function. And I couldn't take like a day off, for example, because if they had a question, they would come to me and they would ask yeah. me. And I'd get that little buzz when I could answer their question and feel really great about myself and be like, yeah, I just saved the day. Um, yeah, and, and created what... a dependency upon you. And now I've got a whole team who are dependent on me. Yeah. And yeah. Um, yeah, that was that was the learning curve. At number six, Michael O'Mahony, head of sales and Mia at MessageBird, shares the lowdown on having difficult conversations. There are times you have to fire people or you have to have difficult conversations. And I'm interested to know um, if that was something that was ever a, a, an issue for you. Uh, I would say yes. Yes, in the early days of, of, you know, when I became a sales manager or sales leader first, for sure. And I think you're right in what you say, you know, social people, you know, they like to be liked. I think where the difficulty comes in then is, is around like having, having those difficult conversations with people, potentially having to let people go, putting people on performance improvement plans, um, and so on. Right. And, uh, that was definitely something I I had to work on in the early days. I think I'm I'm much better at it now, but um, but definitely I think it's something that I that I had to that I had to learn to learn and and get better at. And you know I used to be asking a lot of, you know I used to have a lot of mentors and so on that I'd be asking about. You know how how would you handle this conversation now? Because here's the scenario, here's the outcome I want, but I don't want to get stuck in the middle a little bit, you know, how do I get from here to here? And, you know, things like that, for sure, I think bouncing that off of off people who I trusted and who I know, who I knew had had those conversations. So there was a few people like that in, in Indeed and, and outside of Indeed as well that I would have been, that I would have been learning from, for sure. Um, but now, now I think, look, I think, you know, it's part of my job, Paul, you know, um, obviously, you know, uh, you know, sales is, is performance driven a lot. And um, and obviously it's my, my role. I, I see my role as, as being, you know, to, to drive that performance and, and keep it as high as we possibly can, not just at the team level, but also on an individual level. But but sometimes it just it just doesn't work out. Yeah. And um, 
and and I'm much more confident and much more comfortable having those conversations. And um, you know, you know, my my idea of those conversations is 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 now is that by the time we get there, you know, I like to feel that I've done everything I can in the lead up to that to make this conversation a, a, an easier one to have than than springing it on someone or something like that. If that if that makes sense to you. And number five, David Martin, head of sales at Cassia, reveals what drives him. Okay, but ho hold up for a second because there's something in, in this story that I want to draw out. There's, there's a common thread here which is centers around, you've had many jobs from yeah. you know working as an office junior, being in the cash and carry and so on, and now being a very different one as a fitness yeah. instructor. But in all of those, you're pushing yourself to something bigger and better or different. Yeah. all of the time and you're going back to school to do your leaving search you went back to do this fitness training course and now you're doing this it course where does that drive come from where does that sense yeah. of the the desire to educate yourself beyond where you are currently yeah yeah so it, it, it's something personal to me and where it comes from paul is my mother you know she's always always like, as I mentioned earlier on, she never drove me to do, like, pushed me to do it. She always let me learn by my own mistakes, you know. And mm. I always, what I always refer back to is, and it's kind of, I've had this conversation with a couple of people, like, you know, my purpose is to make my mother proud. That's what I've always lived by, to make her proud. Like, I, um, like, I'm driven by money. Okay, I am. I am driven by money. I'm driven by a better life. But like the thing that gets me out of bed every morning is just to kind of make my mother happy. And you know, she. So yeah, yeah I, I want you to talk to me a little bit more about her. Was she a single mother? She was a single mother. Yeah. Yeah. Single mother, brought, yeah. So brought you up alone. That can't yeah. have been easy. So no. talk to me about her characteristics, her traits that you yeah. most admire in her. Yeah, hundred percent. So her work ethic was unbelievable. Paul, like, like, I remember as a kid, as a kid, when I was between 10 and 12, she would work three jobs, you know, she'd have a job in the, from obviously eight to four. Then I remember going around, we're in the offices on the hardcore street, helping her do the, um, the office cleanup. Okay. So she'd Ooh. do that as well. She'd probably kill me for saying this, but then she was a, she was a bouncer on copper face jacks. Now, not at the door, on the toilet. So she would actually do that with my granddad, actually. My granddad would do that as well. So, like, wow. great work ethic, great work ethic. Incredible. Now, in saying that, Paul, right, I'll be honest, like, and John Meany, my old boss in DBFL, will be testing this. I was lazy. I was very lazy back then, okay? And differently motivated, that's what we say. Dave. Sorry? Differently, differently motivated. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it's funny because since since I've, since I've evolved, as you mentioned there, like, my yeah. work ethic has gotten, obviously, yeah. a lot better yeah. and yeah see i this is an interesting thing because you said i was lazy you just mm -hmm. hadn't found what it was that got you excited i don't know that most people are lazy i'm sure some are but i think yeah. a lot of people it's they're put into a, an environment or into a situation that doesn't mean much to them and it's very hard to get excited and mm -hmm. excitement is energy mm -hmm. so you now found something that gave you a sense of confidence in yourself a sense of pull the kind of a yeah. gravitational effect towards yeah. something that was bigger than you that yeah. that that you derived that motivation from without it it, it is hard it is yeah. hard tell me something was your mother much of a dis disciplinarian she wasn't 
No, she wasn't. She wasn't. She wasn't that tough. She really mm. wasn't that tough. But you know what? You have sometimes where you have the pros and cons. That I think there's a lot more pros to that because mm. I don't think I'd be the person I am today if it wasn't for her. Like in regards mm. to morals, values, work ethic. Mm. You know, um, like she let me fail and go through my own mistakes, and then mm. from that, then I was able to get some awareness from that. Thankfully to make sure that going forward, then I wouldn't make them mistakes again. So she was kind of mm. that kind of person. She would let you do um, what you need to do. And then if you did then do a mistake, you know, it's learn from yeah. that. Yeah, you got to give yourself some credit for that as well, Dave, because other people go out and make mistakes and they don't learn from them. Yeah. At number four, Roisin Corrigan, head of sales at Zealous, speaks about becoming comfortable with your authentic self. I mean, we talk about, right, and I know you and I have spoke before a little bit at the start of this, about things that happen in life that have a you know, fundamental impact on you. And I remember, like, in my late 20s, early 30s, I was like, you know, I was doing well. I had a decent job. I was getting up every day. You go to work, you come home, you have a great group of friends, you go out on the weekend, enjoy yourself. But I always had this thing, there's got to be more to life. There's got to be more to life. And this is quite mundane. And a few of my friends had done a course called Landmark Education. And I remember at the time... They all had done this course and they kind of come out of the course and were like, really got into action to live lives they really wanted to live. So I was like, they tried to get me to have a look at a few times. I was like, no, no, no. And I remember eventually I said, right, I'll go and do this course. And you really, it was interesting because you spend three days in a room, right? And the only thing you look at for three days is who am I and who am I being? And you really get to look at, like, how often in life do you put yourself into a room for three days just to turn yourself inside out, look at who you are. Why do I do what I do? and Why do I behave the way I behave? And do I do it as a result of things? And I, I suddenly believe that that's who I am, but actually that's not who you are. You can be whoever you want to be. That's just something happened and you made a decision. And so that's how you, and after a while you really think, well, that's just who I am. And I think that was a really interesting time because you understand that actually something happened and I made a decision and I think that's who I am, but that's not who I am. I can choose to be whoever I want to be. And it's a really kind of powerful context to live your life. And you get to see as well how consumed you are by everybody else's opinion of you. And you can, I kind of thought I'd spent a bit of my life while I was quite free, almost being a bit of a chameleon, right? Because you're trying to think about who, you know, in this room of people, I'm this person, and, you know, work, I'm like this. And I think from there on, I actually got really comfortable with being my authentic self and who I want to be in the world. And I'm totally fine with that. What did you learn about yourself? Uh, you mentioned your authentic self. Well, what did you learn about yeah. yourself through that process and what changed? I think I got to see, though, I was being a chameleon, that I was quite consumed with what other people thought of me and other people's opinions of me were actually... And if I carried on the way I had been up until that point, I would have spent my life living my life for what I thought other people wanted, as opposed to, hang on a second, what's important to me? Who do I want to be in the world? And it's not the doing that's important, it's the being. And explain that, just expand on that, 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 that it's not the doing, it's the being. Yeah, so you can do stuff all day long, but any, you know, people think if we do something, you'll have something, then you'll be a certain way. Right. But actually, you can be who you want to be like that. And you don't have to do anything to have something. And it's who you're being. So, you know, you can say something to somebody 
And if your being behind it isn't very nice, that will land. And you can say the exact same thing. But if you're being really generous with that person, it lands very differently. Mm. So I think I don't think about what needs to be done. I think about who I need to be. So who do I need to be in order to this to be successful? Who do I need to be, you know, to to kind of, I guess, land the message? Who do I need to be for a communication to be powerful? It's not doing of the communication, it's the being behind it, if that makes sense. It, it, it absolutely does. And what I'm guessing is that, there's a, that, that what you do then comes from that, but you start with the being. being. Interesting. And at number three, Henrique Aragao, EVP of sales at The Ultimate AI, shares his lessons learned from expanding into new geographies. Tell me a little bit about, though, as, as you went through that transition or that journey, I guess, what were the kind of challenges you, that you came up against that you weren't expecting? Um, well, definitely how long it takes. Um, so you think of it this way, right? So I've, I've just done my second tour of duty, bringing a US business into, into the EMEA region, right? The first time I did it was under the umbrella of Salesforce, that, that company that God had hired me to, um, to run Europe for. Um, my first interview was with him and, and with our CRO, Matt Gorniak, um, who were running what was known at the time as Steelbrick, a configure price quote. Um, application that was built on on the Salesforce CRM for pricing and quoting managing contracts. My last interview was with the president of EMEA for Salesforce because the company had been acquired in in that period. So I actually spent my three years building this European business in in uh, you know inside Salesforce. And so when I came to G two, you know I had a lot of um, a lot of con preconceptions about how quickly we were going to scale the business. You know, we scaled uh, just in Europe a forty million dollar business in three years. I'm I'm sat here talking to you, um, three years, almost three years um, into G two, um, and I can tell you we're probably below half of that number in the same period, right? Um, and that's for a number of reasons, but. Um, but definitely, you know, if, if you're doing it alone and not part of a massive ecosystem, it takes longer. So that was one learning and, and building the team, getting the team up to productivity. Um, when you don't have partners and you don't have uh, an ecosystem to rely on, um, means it's, it takes longer. Uh, and also yes. being a true regional leader rather than just a sales manager within a region. Um, you know, there's a bunch of things I hadn't thought of, like building the brand in the region. Um, you know, I've, you know, I've had to sort out offices and, uh, legals and HR and benefits and all that kind of stuff, which, you know, if you're only thinking that I've only got a revenue number on my, on my shoulder, like you don't think about all these things. Um, but also all of the supporting functions, um, related to revenue from customer success support, um, business development, SDRs, BDRs, um, figuring out demand generation and marketing in regions. So all of these things for me were a big jump from focusing just on sales to focusing on revenue um, without all of the same kind of infrastructure that you had in a large technology company. So it's been a very exciting period um, to go through all of those. Uh, and they slow you down, you know, that those kind of things slow you down. But once you get going, sure. the momentum then is much more exciting than it would be at a large company. Yeah because yeah. in a large company, you're fighting for so much resources with other cost centers. Whereas when you're running your region and you found your version of product market fit and things are humming, 
you can put a lot of fire, a lot of a lot of fuel in that fire, and that's really exciting. And number two, Jimmy Kyo, head of digital inside sales at Vodafone, shares with me his take on making uncomfortable decisions. I would imagine though, as you said, the trusting and being the nice guy and, uh, and seeing the good in people comes naturally to you. Talk to me a little bit about some of the, some of the things like being tough that may have been uncomfortable for you. Talk to me yeah. about those and how you overcame maybe some of those discomforts. Yeah, look, the first, the first, I remember the first time making people redundant or the first time firing people, the first time having those difficult conversations, you know, many, many years ago. And they're, 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 they're not pleasant. They're not easy. And, and they still aren't because again, deep down in me, I want, I want to help and support people. And when you see people going through this stuff, it's horrible. Um, but as I've done it, you kind of get used to it and you realize it's not personal. It's not about the individual. It's sometimes they need that. They need that support to know, you know what, this isn't right for you. Let's find something that's better for you and let's support you to go somewhere where you're going to be happier and be more successful. So in the beginning, it was difficult, um, but it is just something you have to, it's part of the gig, right? It's part of the role. Um, and, and as I've matured and, you know, grown into bigger roles, you know, when you're, when you're managing, you know, multiple hundreds of people now, you make tough decisions and, and, and luckily I've been able to make them when the impact has been small and get used to doing it to now where, you know, I have to make those decisions sometimes that are not comfortable, but you make them. You have to make them. And at number one, it's Wendy Harris, head of EMEA Gong, opens up about her struggle breaking into a new industry. I want to talk to you about your career because when I was looking through it, I, what I was fascinated with was it's like this, this U-shape that you went from Trinity into uh, Goldman Sachs and you said you worked as a trader and went, went up the ranks there. Then you spent some time, I know, in Davy. Um, when you went to Facebook, it wasn't such a senior role. And, and that's what fascinated me. I looked at that and I, and, I, and I was checking the dates to see, now that can't be right. But then I heard you say that you were, what you were trying to do was transition from that job as a trader to technology and that there was doors being shut and you put, you know, closing your face and that in order to get in, you took a, a step, a big step back in, in, in salary. That's something that not a lot of people would be willing to do. And I'm fascinated by the character. What is it? What's the, what's the thinking that you were going through at the time that you said, okay, you know what? I'm going to take this, what would be perceived as a step back. Clearly it wasn't, it was a step forward, but to what's conventional, we, we, we wouldn't interpret it that way. And, and I'm genuinely fascinated. I haven't seen it before. Yeah, I will say I have made very few conscious career choices in my life in terms of I've just been open to opportunity and things have come my way. But this one, moving from finance to tech was a very, very conscious choice. And I spent a year interviewing with every tech firm and every tech firm slammed the door in my face and they wouldn't give me a job. And I mean, as an AE, I couldn't get a job as an account exec. I couldn't get a job as an account manager. Nobody would give me a job because the recruiters didn't understand my CV because I'd worked at Goldman Sachs as a trader. They're like, well, mm. you don't know anything about digital marketing. So I was like, okay, um, there's some transferable skills here, I promise you. Yeah. But um, I, I couldn't get my foot in the door anywhere. I couldn't, I couldn't, half the time I couldn't get an interview. And then the times I did get an interview, um, it was the, the gap, what they saw, obviously they saw. And to be fair, I agree with some of it in terms of the onboarding. My ramp would have been longer. So I get some of the concerns with that. But um, 
I just swallowed my pride. And you know what? I will say I, I had the luxury to be able to swallow my pride. I, you know, I had some savings. I didn't have to support a family and 10 children. So I was able to do that. Um, but I was really determined to make the move from finance to tech. Finance it was great for me. I worked there for over a decade. It was a wonderful experience. But I, you know, I saw the writing on the wall in terms of everything was shrinking. Margins were shrinking. People were getting fired. It was just everything i wanted to be part of a growth environment not a shrinking mm. environment and you know i'm very proud that i spent over a decade at goldman sachs it was a wonderful place i left on my own terms and it was um i i'm always really proud to have worked there and i still have a lot of friends from there mm. but i wanted to go and i saw my brothers both worked in technology i saw they were happy i wanted to move home to dublin and um and then honestly i just it was a it was a bleak year because you mm. do spend your you know goldman sachs is at the time was considered one of the premier institutions anyway in the world and i worked with top talent and it was very bleak to to have nose constantly but i believed eventually something would open and i did a digital marketing course to give me to, to count, help counteract that look i'm serious i want to do this i did a digital marketing course as well but also time and time again i got told you're too senior for the role but i was too senior and not senior enough so i had way too much experience and not enough experience and i will say to people because like people a lot of people ask me for advice on this just keep going, keep banging on doors, keep asking people, just keep making connections. Eventually, you know, I took that job at, at, at Facebook. I was on a contract and I was earning literally 10% of what I used to earn. Mm. And I just said, it's a foot in the door. Once I get this, I know that I'm going to work really hard, swallow my pride, be humble, do the best, everything to the best of my ability and the rest will follow. Mm. And, um, and I really encourage people to think about if they can afford to do that they should really do that well i hope you get to enjoy these snippets from these outstanding sales leaders as much as we did and we already have some fantastic guests lined up for 2022 so to ensure you don't miss out please take a moment to subscribe to the sales leadership podcast links are below and it's available now on all major podcast platforms also if you'd like to nominate someone you'd like to hear on the podcast in the new year please dm me and let me know in the meantime, have a wonderful Christmas and a fantastic New Year.